of Minnesota here on FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. Here's what's coming up on the show today. We are going to be speaking with a man who used to work in the U.S. Attorney's Office. His name is Bill Johnston, and back in the 90s and 2000s, he helped prosecute some cases against domestic terrorists. And of course, over the past few years, we've certainly seen a rise in right-wing terrorism with the election of Donald Trump. So he's going to connect some of these common threads that we see in these right-wing terrorist plots, among them, of course, being that attempted kidnapping of Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. He'll provide us some insight and tell us about, well, what could we possibly expect in the future, especially now that we are going to be having a changing of the guard in the White House with Joe Biden taking over for Donald Trump in January. So we'll be speaking with Bill Johnston about right-wing terrorism coming up in just a few minutes. Also ahead, we are going to be talking about how Minnesota can improve our election systems and more specifically how we can get money out of politics. A group called Clean Elections Minnesota recently partnered with St. Cloud State University, and they conducted surveys around the state asking people what they thought about some reforms to our election system, including the disclosure of dark money, increasing public financing of campaigns, and citizen-driven redistricting. We'll be speaking with George Beck of Clean Elections Minnesota in just a few minutes on the show on how we can make our election system in Minnesota better. We, of course, do run a relatively good election system compared to other states, but there is definitely room for improvement, and we'll be talking with George about that in the next segment. But before we get to all of that, I want to talk about a few sports-related stories, and we'll go to the Minnesota Vikings first, as they blew the whistle on Wednesday on their hopes of bringing fans back to U.S. Bank Stadium during the 2020 season, and as you can probably guess, they cited COVID-19 infection rates as a reason why fans will not be brought back to the stadium. It'll be interesting to see how our other Minnesota sports teams deal with this, since at least in theory, the Wild and the Timberwolves could be playing games in their home arenas this season. Uh, I'm not sure if I would necessarily be comfortable attending a sporting event at an indoor venue, maybe outdoors if there's a lot of social distancing. You can maybe talk me into it, but that would still be a stretch. But yeah, for the most part, uh, I would think that the Timberwolves and the Wild probably going to be in the same boat in not allowing fans in their arenas this winter. The other sports-related story has to do with the St. Paul Saints. There are some serious rumors right now that they might become the Minnesota Twins' new AAA minor league affiliate. And that's significant because not only would the Saints become a minor league affiliate of the Twins, they would be their number one affiliate. Because the way minor league baseball works is that you basically have single A, double A, and triple A, where triple A is the highest level of the minor leagues, where you typically have players who are closest to being ready for the major leagues. So the Twins already canceled their contract with their current triple A team in Rochester, New York, and it looks like the Saints could be lined up to be the new Twins AAA affiliate. Now, here's where the politics could come into this. So the current stadium that the Saints play in, CHS Field, has a capacity of only 7,200 fans. But 
Minor League AAA Baseball requires teams to have at least 10,000 fans in capacity. Now, there are some rumors that Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball might remove that requirement, but if they don't, and the Twins are still set on making the Saints their minor league affiliate, well, would that possibly mean we would need to provide more public funding to CHS Field to expand their stadium to 10,000 seats so they can become the Twins' new minor league affiliate? I certainly hope not, but watch that, because as the state is facing a budget shortfall for the next few years, yeah, I don't want to see any money going towards CHS Field to add a couple thousand seats just so they can become the Twins' new AAA affiliate. A few more quick hitter stories to get to. Let's head to North Dakota, where Republican Governor Doug Burgum, this is some really depressing news, has announced that COVID-positive nurses could stay at work. Yeah, in other words, if you're a nurse and you've tested positive for COVID-19, they have such a spike in coronavirus cases, they're going to let you work anyways. By the way, good job using your CARES Act money on oil, North Dakota. If you don't remember this, North Dakota officials voted to repurpose $221 million in federal coronavirus aid they received from the federal government to state agencies, and they decided to have $16 million of that $221 million go to oil companies in support of the fracking process. Yeah, they probably could have used that $16 million to up their capacity with hospitals rather than putting themselves in a situation now where they're having to tell nurses that if you test positive for COVID-19, uh, you're still able to work. President Donald Trump's newly installed acting Pentagon chief is bringing on a senior advisor in a sign the administration wants to accelerate the withdrawal of U.S. troops from the Middle East before the end of his presidential term in January. Don't often agree with Donald Trump, but this is one area where I'll say, hey, bring it on. Let's get those troops out of Afghanistan. Yeah, one of the few areas where you'll ever see me agree with the current president. To Mississippi we go, where State Representative Prince Wallace, what a name right there for a politician, Prince Wallace, he tweeted out a couple of days ago that his state should secede from the rest of the United States and form its own country. I say, let them do that. We can get Mississippi and some of the other red states out of our country. Why not? And by the way, on that topic... I think blue states should kind of take the same idea, where they could go and possibly form their own states within a state. I'm thinking about, like, let's say, Georgia. Why not have Atlanta go and become their own state? Or North Carolina. Let's make Charlotte their own state. I talked about this on a show a few months ago, how this should be a strategy that some states should take if they have large metro areas and you have rural people complaining about how all the attention goes to the metro area. Well, Let's divide up these metro areas into, I don't know, maybe two or three states. Of course, you get more Democratic senators, and you free all of the rural folks from the tyranny of the metro area. Probably won't be happening anytime soon, especially since we have divided government at the federal level. But always an interesting idea, and it made me think of that, seeing that tweet from that Mississippi State Representative Prince Wallace. Let's go a little bit west to the state of Texas, where Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has offered up to $1 million of his own campaign funds for any whistleblowers or tipsters who come forward with evidence of a voter fraud in the 2020 presidential election. That's according to CBS Dallas Fort Worth. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if anyone will take him up on that offer. That'd be $1 million if they have any proof of voter fraud. 
or election fraud, what will be funny is that if you actually had like a Democratic leaning person come in and prove that there was Republican voter fraud, still wonder if Dan Patrick would be good to pay that $1 million. In other news, remember those legalized Cannabis Party candidates in Minnesota that very likely cost several DFLers their elections this fall? Well, in Florida, a TV station down there found evidence to suggest that three candidates in three Florida State Senate District races were shill candidates whose presence in the races were meant to siphon votes from Democratic candidates. So that's not just happening in Minnesota with third parties. It's happening in Florida, too, with Republicans trying to boost up third-party candidates. So here's what I would do if I'm a Democrat, whether I'm in Minnesota or in Florida or anywhere else. Don't just sit there and complain about the fact that Republicans are propping up third-party candidates. Fight fire with fire. Try to prop up, let's say, I don't know, the Libertarian Party or the Constitution Party. Those are both political parties that are to the right of the Republicans, and who knows, maybe if you prop them up, you can siphon votes away from Republicans. Sometimes you got to fight fire with fire when you run into these situations. And finally, this a report out of Deutsche Bank. That, of course, would be Donald Trump's favorite bank. White-collar staff reaping the financial benefits of working from home should be taxed to help other workers who aren't getting the same advantages, experts at Deutsche Bank said in a new report. In its report on how to rebuild the economy after COVID-19, the bank proposed a 5% daily tax on each employee that continues to work from home, which would raise tens of billions of dollars for governments. The money could be used to help lower-income workers who have taken on greater risk because of the jobs that they can't be doing remotely. Yeah, that's being proposed by Deutsche Bank, essentially saying that anyone who works from home should be taxed at 5%, so that money can be given to lower-income people. I can already see uh, certain conservatives thinking, that sounds like a really good idea, because uh, we can tax people who work at home, but then in turn give that money to higher-income people. Yeah, very doubtful if that program were implemented that that money would actually go to low-income people. But there you go. That's a recommendation from Donald Trump's favorite bank, Deutsche Bank. All right, we're going to take a break and come on back and talk about election integrity in Minnesota and how we can enact some reforms in our state that would get money out of politics. That would certainly be nice, wouldn't it? We'll be speaking with George Beck of Clean Elections Minnesota about that and more coming up next here on FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We're back on FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. Well, a survey of Minnesotans was released earlier this week that finds a large majority of Minnesota residents want to improve the campaigns that they just experienced. The survey was conducted in conjunction with St. Cloud State University and was commissioned by the Clean Elections Minnesota Group. That is Clean Elections Minnesota. So joining us to talk about the survey and some of the reforms that were polled and a little more detail about some of these ideas that are going to be proposed is George Beck from Clean Elections Minnesota. Besides that, he's also the chair of the Minnesota Campaign Finance and Public Disclosure Board. He's a retired administrative law judge and current chair of Clean Elections Minnesota. George, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. So... 
looking at this survey, it looks like we have a lot of bipartisan supports for some pretty basic election integrity reform. So tell us about this survey and how it was conducted. Well, we uh, we thought that there'd been not enough information on Minnesotans' opinions on some of these democracy issues. And there's, there's quite a bit of data nationally on... Uh, how people support these uh, things like dark money disclosure. Uh, But we wanted something that we could educate the public with and uh, hopefully to educate legislators uh, next session. And so we commissioned uh, the St. Cloud folks to include four of our questions in their annual fall survey. And uh, they agreed to do that after we negotiated out the nature of the questions, um, and it came in very strong in in support for some of these things that we've been urging over the, the past couple of years. Yeah, I'd like to run through uh, some of the questions that you asked on the survey, and let's start things off with dark money. An overwhelming 82% of Minnesotans agreed that all contributions to political campaigns should be publicly disclosed while only 13% want to keep the current approach where those contributions remain private. By the way, I'd like to know who those 13% were on a side note. But anyways, (laughs) what would a good public disclosure program look like in Minnesota? Tell us about that. Well, in Minnesota, um, you can place ads, mailings, billboards, all of these electioneering communications things and contribute to it without disclosing who the contributors are. And uh, this is, people are always surprised by this. It's it's unusual. 19 states have prohibited this from happening, but uh, although legislation has been offered in Minnesota several times, uh, it, has, it has never passed. So I can put up an ad that says, uh, Senator Smith, uh, opposes or believes in gun control. And that may or may not be true because we don't know who's uh, sponsoring the contribution. Um, so they can say just about anything they want. Um, this uh, nearly passed a few years ago, um, but failed by a few votes. And, you know, the Senate's going to be awfully closely divided this next session. I think it's just one vote difference uh, between majority and minority. And so, although it's going to be tricky, and it has, it was last year, um, I'm thinking something might be possible. And because of the overwhelming percentage that favor this, and that's consistent with the uh, national percentage is always around 80% who think uh, all contributions ought to be public. Yeah, I'm with you on that. It should be pretty obvious that (laughs) we should know exactly who is paying for the political campaigns of our different candidates that are running for a public office. Hey, moving on to another question here, George, I want to talk about campaign spending limits, because on this survey question, a strong majority, about 55%, think the U.S. Supreme Court decision that allowed unlimited political contributions to campaigns was wrong. That would be, of course, Citizens United. 
And that's actually 16% more than people who say they do support the Citizens United decision. So it's probably unlikely that Citizens United is going to be overturned anytime soon, at least at the federal level, given our current political and judicial makeup. But we probably could take some baby steps or even maybe do something at the state or the local local level. Uh, What do you think about that, George, in terms of trying to rein in our campaign spending limits under Citizens United? Well, I agree with you that, that this is a long-term effort, um, no doubt about that. But Minnesota has not even taken a baby step, which would be to ask Congress to propose an amendment to reverse Citizens United. Um, and uh, about 20 states have, have done that. And so we, we need to keep on with this and keep pressing uh, Congress to do something about this. It's this is what has permitted uh, super PACs to contribute millions of dollars in campaigns, and uh, there's a large amount of this that comes from outside Minnesota. It has nothing to do with Minnesota voters, um, and it's simply a way that is to defeat what citizens want. What ha- what happens uh, is that things get passed that the uh, big contributors favor, and that's just a matter of uh, fact. It's been demonstrated uh, several times that uh, you and I uh, don't have the same uh, influence with legislators that the big contributors do. So that, that's important. It's going to take a while. Uh, we have to keep working on it, um, and I firmly believe it's going to happen someday. Yeah, I, I hope that happens sooner rather than later, but we got a long way to go, and we can certainly take some steps here in Minnesota, as you're saying. Speaking with George Beck, he is with the group Clean Elections Minnesota, talking about a survey that they just conducted, along with St. Cloud State University, talking about some different campaign reforms. And want to move on and talk about public financing of campaigns, as Nearly 6 in 10 Minnesotans support increased partial public financing of political campaigns to reduce the dependence on private funding by special interest groups, while 37% oppose increasing public financing. So, got to be honest, George, that kind of surprised me that 37% of people were against the idea of increasing public financing of campaigns. And I'm wondering, maybe perhaps it's a case where people think, well, I don't want my tax dollars going to support these dirty political campaigns. But as I'm sure you can explain, publicly financed campaigns are actually better for democracy, right? Oh, without doubt. Um, If we are going to end uh, special interest domination of campaigns, there has to be a public financing component. And I was kind of encouraged by the percentage here because there's... There's always been a long-standing opposition to uh, using uh, tax money to support political campaigns. And in this case, 58% uh, said that they would support using tax dollars to, uh, to fund political campaigns, and I thought that was impressive. There's a lot of different ways to do it, obviously. Um, one that I thought was interesting was a bill submitted last session by Representative Long and Senator Carlson. And 
it didn't get a hearing, but it would have provided vouchers or, as we like to call them, democracy dollars of $100 to each registered voter that they would then use to um, send to candidates in any way that they thought was appropriate. The uh, House bill had 37 co-sponsors, I believe, so there was uh, quite a bit of interest in it. And other states have uh, other uh, avenues like a six-to-one match uh, from uh, uh, tax money to pub- to uh, individual contributions. Uh, New York, L.A. Uh, do that, and uh, uh, New York, I think, does it for $175 or less. Uh, you could get a match. So, and or tax credits for small donors is another approach. There's a lot of ways to uh, go at this, but it's it's absolutely the most important thing we can do uh, while Citizens United is still the law of the land. Yeah, absolutely, and I agree with that. The public financing of campaigns is something that we we could really use to increase because that not only helps our democracy in general, but really it can it can be beneficial to some of these candidates who don't quite have access to some of these mega donors. And I think it's better for politicians too, where they don't have to spend all of their time fundraising. If we actually had a system where campaigns were publicly financed, well, our politicians could actually go talk to people rather than just fundraising 24 seven, which is uh, pretty much the situation now, especially at the federal level. But it's been shocking to see how that's really trickled down to even to some of these state legislative races where you have, millions of dollars being poured into some of these local races, especially I think it was uh, Senate District 34, or that Warren Limmer race, which had millions of dollars poured into it. And yeah, if you publicly finance campaigns, well, then we no longer have to have our elected officials relying on big-time donors and trying to fundraise 24-7. That's exactly right. And I think the Limmer campaign attracted a million and a half. Yeah, it was something well, like that, yeah contributions is just uh well it's very unfortunate um and, and, and it's I, I was gonna say and that's only for a district that has about like 78 or maybe eighty thousand people a million yeah. and a half dollars going to a district that has less than a hundred thousand people is just mind-blowing to think about at least from my perspective All right, George, let's move on to another question you guys asked on your survey that had to do with redistricting, which is something that, of course, is going to happen after this year with the new census data that's going to be released. Of course, our political districts are going to look a lot different in the coming decade. And on the question of how to redraw political district lines, almost two-thirds of Minnesotans, 65%, prefer the creation of an independent citizens commission to draw those maps while only 13% preferred keeping the current approach where district lines are drawn by state legislatures. So at least here in our state, George, we haven't quite had the same number of problems that other states have had with redistricting and gerrymandering. And that's more due to the fact that each year we've had a census, Minnesota has had divided government. But should we ever have a situation where one political party controls the governor's mansion and both chambers of the legislature, gerrymandering could be an issue in our state. So What should we be doing here in Minnesota to make sure we never run into something that's happened in states like North Carolina and Wisconsin, which are heavily gerrymandered now? What do you think we need to do in our state? Well, we can just learn a lesson from Wisconsin. Um, 
when they redrew maps in 2011, they had uh, one party in control of the legislature and the governor's office. And the result was maps that uh, were, in fact, gerrymandered, and uh, I think that's pretty much recognized nationally. And um, it turns out that uh, in 2018, one party had, oh, about 40-some percent of the vote statewide for the assembly, and they ended up with uh, close to 60% of the seats in the assembly. Well, that's classic gerrymandering, and it means that a lot of citizens in Wisconsin um, simply uh, didn't have a legitimate vote. Um, it's just not democratic. It's cheating in order to win. Um, so we don't want that to happen here. As you said, we've been pretty lucky um, because of deadlock, uh, map drawing has gone to the courts, and they've done a pretty reasonable job. Um, but legislators have an inherent conflict of interest in drawing maps. They draw them to favor, favor themselves or their political parties, and it's just too much to ask them not to do that based on a set of principles. Um, now, we... We favor an independent commission. Uh, right now, um, the Constitution in Minnesota provides that the legislature has to do the map drawing. So the best we can do is a recommendation from a citizen uh, commission. Although last session, uh, one of the bills also proposed a constitutional amendment to have a truly independent commission uh, decide the maps and uh, I suspect that will pop up again uh, next year, and uh, it did get a hearing, and uh, hopefully uh, that might be acceptable again. I'm being optimistic on the small difference in the Senate between the two political parties and and uh, thinking that there might be uh, some sort of compromise. Yeah, and you would think at some point the political parties would realize that we could end up getting bit by this if a certain election year ends up not going our way. And that almost became the case for Republicans, or as you said, they were one seat away from having, well, a Democratic trifecta in our state where it could have been the DFL gerrymandering districts if they had chosen. They were only one seat away from having that happen. So a couple more questions for you here, George, before we wrap things up. Are there any states that we can use as possibly like a model for coming up for some of these uh, nonpartisan commissions that can redraw district lines? I know there's a few states that actually do that, but are there any that we could possibly follow in Minnesota and try to model our system off of what they do? Well, the two that come to my mind are California and uh, Arizona. Um California actually has an independent commission. Um, their constitution permitted that. And and so it's really all set out there. And bills that were offered last session, there were two or three. Uh, it picked up on the the setup that they used in, in California. It's not it's not extremely complicated. Um you know, you have to pick a commission which gets into how much politics are going to get involved in that and whether you're going to allow political leaders to appoint p- 
people to the commission or not. Um, but yes, the models are out there. There's several, and uh, and they're working. Uh, it's it's certainly a model that would permit us to easily adapt it to the situation in Minnesota. All right, George, we are just about out of time, but I do got to ask you one more question before we wrap things up. Uh, what can people do to get involved with some of these reforms that you're proposing, and how could they help out with your group, Clean Elections Minnesota? Well, our website is cleanelectionsmn.org. Um, you can find out there exactly what's going to be proposed this next session. Uh, you can become familiar with the legislature website and how to use it to contact legislators and to take a look at legislation that's been proposed. We will be highlighting uh, the bills that we think are important next session as well as the hearings and uh, uh, who you can send your comments to. Um, It's extremely important. And Legislators are actually pay attention if they get about six emails on a particular issue. Um, they do they do listen, and uh, that's what we have to do. We have to be organized enough to um, and have uh, we have about oh I don't know 500 supporters that we ask to participate each legislative session. We'd sure like to have additional people on our mailing list, and uh, you can do that through our website. Uh, So join the battle. (laughs) We'd love to have more people. And I loved what you said right there as well, where it only takes, what, about six people to send an email to a legislature about a certain topic, and, well, they're probably going to pay attention to you. Six is not a very big number, so get yourself and maybe a few family members and friends involved, and Maybe you can uh, get the attention of some of the members of the state legislature. And we've been speaking with George Beck from Clean Elections Minnesota. He is the chair, of course, of that group. Clean Elections Minnesota is also the chair of the Minnesota Campaign Finance and Public Disclosure Board and is a retired administrative law judge. Talking about this survey that... Oh, go ahead, George. Brett, I was the chair of the Campaign Finance Board. Oh, gotcha. All right. I was going to say, yeah, you're a busy person if you're the chair of both of those groups. Former chair, I got you. <laughs> Appreciate the correction on that. I got to make sure we get those right. Hey, we were talking about the survey that you guys just recently conducted, though, in conjunction with St. Cloud State University talking about these election reforms. And uh, highly encourage, as George was saying, you know, make sure you email your legislatures about these things. It doesn't take a whole lot of people to get the attention of some of those members. George, I really appreciate the time today uh, going through this survey and some of the reforms you guys are proposing. Thanks again for joining me. Brett, thank you so much. You have a great program and, and a real public service. And stick around. We'll come on back and have more on FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. And we're back on AM 950. It's FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. 
Well, over the past few weeks and months, we've certainly seen a rise, at least in the media, reporting on domestic terrorism cases. As according to the Associated Press, investigators have uncovered a plot to kidnap Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, who is a Republican, which is very similar to that failed plot to kidnap the Michigan governor, Gretchen Whitmer. This also comes just a few weeks after D Magazine reported that FBI agents in the Dallas field office are warning of the likelihood that far-right extremists will use the presidential election as a flashpoint to further sow anti-government sentiment through rhetoric and potential domestic violence. So joining us to talk more about this threat of domestic terrorism is Bill Johnston. He is a former U.S. attorney and federal prosecutor. He has practiced law for more than 30 years, including 14 in the U.S. Attorney's Office, where he helped prosecute multiple domestic terrorism cases. Bill also co-hosts the podcast called Justice Facts. Bill, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. So, is this threat we've been seeing of domestic terrorism new? Has we really been seeing a spike over the past few months and years, or has it been kind of the case where it's just been flying under the radar and now we're paying a lot more attention to it? What are your thoughts on that? I think this sort of thing comes um, in cycles, and there are certain things you can look forward to see in looking back on it, the rise and, and the fall of it that typically go near an election time or an election result that uh, doesn't suit certain people or philosophies or groups. And uh, so you often see it in connection with a time like that. For instance, um, during the early part of President uh, Clinton's administration, there was a rise in so-called militia groups, and that existed quite a bit during the 90s, um, and that sort of um, mentality is what may have led to the Oklahoma City bombing, which was so horrific, uh, which was a, a flat, a, the literal largest flashpoint of that effort. So how sophisticated are these schemes usually, for instance, if we're talking about these plots to kidnap different elected officials? Are these large groups putting these things together, coordinating with each other who's going to do which task? Or is it more the case of the, I don't like using this term, but it applies sometimes, like the lone wolf? Uh, Talk a little bit about that. Uh, How sophisticated do these schemes usually get? Normally, thankfully, normally they are... um, somewhat harebrained, in other words, not that well thought out and not that sophisticated, typically, because you're dealing with a group of people who are already uh, not overly uh, intellectual, let's say, to be nice, because they often talk to people they shouldn't talk to. The, The scheme gets out, law enforcement learns about it, and squelches it. So, typically, it's not a genius effort uh, by high brain people. It's usually a bunch of knuckleheads that talk too much and then try to act on something. There are exceptions, and that that's what everyone needs to look out for, which is there are exceptions for someone who really thinks through something, who does more than mere preparation, <clears throat> but actually takes steps to further it and gets people working with them. So there are occasions, the Oklahoma City bombing is one example, 
where Timothy McVeigh had help uh, in preparing the bomb and testing the bomb, <clears throat> and he carried it out, and it was unbelievably uh, deadly. So typically, no, they, they're not well thought out, they're not well planned, and they don't even get executed. They get knocked off before they go anywhere. But there are some that succeed, and that's the one in you know 10,000 that we have to worry about. So what sorts of counterintelligence measures do we usually take when we're investigating some of these more sophisticated plots? There's so much online. So you, often law enforcement uh, can find or get a clue that something may be uh, up because there's online talk or chatter. And after 9-11, the Joint Terrorism Task Forces were formed and while most people think they were uh, really for uh, terrorism uh, from overseas that came to the United States, they actually are available for any sort of work like this. So those joint terrorism tax forces have informants, they have uh, intelligence files, and they try to learn about things that may be brewing. And so those law enforcement groups, as well as local law enforcement that just have good ears on the ground can hear that something might be up because sometimes on the fringe of these plots, people who are less committed will talk about it and, and muse and worry about it. And that's what they often look for is something on the edge of the plot that gives them an idea that may be uh, in the works. So what sorts of signs do they look for when they're hearing about some of these threats? How do they discern what's a more credible threat versus something where it could just be a couple of people online just spewing something and getting off, getting something off their chest versus what actually is a real threat out there? What are some of those warning signs that they look for in terms of law enforcement? Um, I would say that most typically you look for action being taken as opposed to words because Everyone's entitled to their opinion, and even if the opinion goes a little far, it's not illegal just to talk about something. But when when groups meet, so they often look for meetings, so organization where people are meeting, sometimes in an isolated location. Uh, practicing um, with weapons is often an early step in these uh, in these plots. Another thing they look for is the purchase of um, of objects which could be used, for instance, in bombings. Uh, in bombings, you look for purchase of the raw materials, um, depending on the type of bomb they might make. And so sometimes you'll see suspicious items purchased. You'll see uh, groups meeting for firearms practice. And I don't mean good folks out there sighting in their rifles. That's obviously, <laughs> that's that uh, goes on all over the place. I'm talking about people that are meeting for the purpose of organizing and practicing something illegal. And so from time to time, uh, they'll run across that. But those are the sorts of things, action rather than mere words. Now, recently, we've, of course, seen many threats to sitting governors around the country with them possibly being kidnapped by some of the right-wing extremist groups. But 
my question about this is that obviously it would be much tougher to, for instance, kidnap the president of the United States with all of the security that is usually around the president. But when we at least look at some of these state-level politicians, do they make a more enticing target to some of these extremist groups? Because they might be sitting there thinking, well, they don't have the Secret Service or some of the other security measures that would typically be around like the president or vice president of the United States. So are these state-level politicians sometimes an easier target for some of these groups? They probably are, because, as you said, they don't have the type of security that is afforded uh, people at a different level. But usually you look for uh, someone, whether it's uh, state, local, or federal, typically the ire is turned towards someone that is particularly offensive to a group, uh, whether it's a stance on firearms or stance on some other some other issues. So uh, any person, politician, public official, that takes a stand that might be extremely unpopular to one side or the other, that, in other words, you're look, looking for targeting. So they typically find themselves more in the spotlight in those positions. But the sad thing about that is on both sides, it's good, it's, you know, nothing wrong with taking a position if it's well-founded and reasonable and logical. Um, we don't want to discourage people from standing up for something. It's just that sometimes that does direct the spotlight toward them. We're speaking with Bill Johnston. He is an attorney and former federal prosecutor that has worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office, including prosecuting a few and multiple, I should say, domestic terrorism cases. So, when you end up do when you end up prosecuting some of these extremists, and you, of course, as I said, have experience doing so, is there any sort of moment when these people are being prosecuted where reality hits them? Like, oh my God, what did I really plan? Or is it sometimes the case where these guys are so committed to their cause, where when they're getting prosecuted, they still very much hold the same beliefs, where reality hasn't quite hit them? I'm not sure if I'm describing that maybe necessarily in your in the best way, but what are your thoughts on that? Like when some of these guys are getting prosecuted, does reality kind of hit them where they think, oh my God, what did I actually do? Right. It, most of them end up pleading guilty. And so uh, just as in any case. And so, yes, it, I think most people who get in a little over their head in something like this regret it. And most, most of them uh, wish they'd never talked about it, thought about it, or taken action in connection with it. There are the exceptions. Tim McVeigh is an exception. Uh, people that believe in something so strongly, they don't mind dying for it. That's And that happens in, in uh, this sort of thing. It happens in international terrorism, of course. We hear about it all the time. So, And that's the one you got to worry about. It, uh, typically, these groups fall short of even doing something because of this thing you're talking about. They get frightened and they get realizing there's consequences, so they don't even follow through with it. That's the vast majority of these so-called plots. That's the way they end. They fizzle out because people don't want to get in trouble. But unfortunately, again, there are the rare exception cases where someone is so committed to it that they'll go all the way and, and they don't care. They don't care if they get caught. They don't care if they die. Um, and that, like I said, we typically think about that in international terrorism, but it does exist in domestic terrorism as well. 
So is there anything we should be doing different at either the federal or the state level to combat this threat of domestic terrorism? We've certainly been hearing reports about this the past few years, how we've definitely had a growing threat of domestic terrorism. So should we be doing anything different at the federal or state level? I don't know. Uh, I think that we're really fortunate that if you think about what's happened the last few years, um, no major plot has been carried out or has been successful that I know of. And so um, I think probably they're doing a fairly good job. And a lot of that is just intelligence type work to try to squelch or snuff out these little efforts. And hopefully, you know, people will think better because law enforcement is out there thinking about that. But we just, you know, being vigilant, I think the next uh, week or two weeks or so, um, we should be very vigilant in just thinking through um, if something looks strange or if someone talks a little too much about something extremist on either side that people may want to say something about it. But overall, we're fortunate. I mean, it's it's similar to international terrorism. We've been pretty fortunate. I think people have done a good job in paying attention and being concerned and, and reporting things. We've been speaking with Bill Johnston. He is an attorney and former federal prosecutor who has experience working in the U.S. Attorney's Office helping prosecute multiple domestic terrorism cases. By the way, also the co-host of the podcast called Justice Facts, as we've been chatting about some of these domestic terror plots that have really been uh, popping up over the past few weeks and months. Hey, Bill, really appreciate the time today talking through this topic. Oh, you're welcome. Hey, quick note before I go, but if you're still looking for plans for your Thanksgiving turkey, encourage you to check out Ferndale Market. They proudly grow their turkeys free-range, and that means they provide their birds plenty of room to roam outdoors during the temperate months and during the summer months, and their turkeys live on fresh pasture all day long. It's an independently owned business in Cannon Falls. I had a chance to meet uh, John Peterson, who of course voices their ads that you hear on the station, and, and really hope you check them out if you still haven't made plans yet for getting your Thanksgiving turkey. You can learn more about them at ferndalemarket.com where you can either pick up the turkey from them or you can find some of the locations of where they're sold around the state. Again, that's ferndalemarket.com. All right, that's all the time I got for my show today. Matt McNeil is up next. Up next.